Welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Big Podcast. Today is part one of a two-part series on discover what a near-death experience taught me about sales, success, and getting business to come to you with Jeff Boomer. Jeff has always known that he had an obligation to share this gift with as many people as possible before he retires, and he has now made it a personal mission to share these secrets as far as he possibly can. 28 years ago, Jeff came across the writings of the richest man to ever walk the earth, Sultan Musa of Mali. No one has ever come close to this guy. Not Jeff Bezos, not Elon Musk, nobody. The Sultan could not talk openly about how he learned these secrets, so he decided to embed the principles of his success into a fairy tale so compelling that centuries later, nearly everybody, including you, everybody in this world is familiar with. Jeff went from $60,000 a year concrete guy to making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in a new business that just dropped into his lap. Over the past 28 years, Jeff has successfully mentored and coached countless of others to speak this all-important language that changes everything. When you learn to speak this language, you can drastically improve your sales, your success, your fitness, relationships, and anything else you desire. It's all contained within Jeff's book, The Sultan's Seven Secrets. So today, we're thinking big on the language of the gods. Welcome to the Thinking Big Podcast with Sean Osborne, the show helping you think bigger into your life and potential. Sean believes by equipping you with the tools, strategies, and philosophies required to be successful in all aspects of your life, you can achieve anything you believe in. Empowering our own growth makes a deeply positive and lasting impact on our lives, community, and our world. Now, here's Sean. Thinking Big, we have such a special guest on the podcast today with us, and I really want to welcome uh, Jeff Buner to the to the podcast. And the work that you've done, and the book that you know, we're going to talk about your about your book, The Sultan Seven Secrets, and really kind of dive into that a little bit and what it means, where it came from, and really the true I think the true meaning of it, because I think. So I, I look at a lot of different personal development in uh, you know in the conscious and subconscious thinking and and all these things and I just love to to see different people's viewpoints on these you know on these things and I think as a as a humanity I think we've lost so much information and so many things that people have known for a long time and we're you know why we lose them I don't know. But we, I think, we've definitely lost track of some of these amazing things that that we've had, you know, in the past. So, Jeff, welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Sean. So, where did you, you know, so you you have your book, uh, The Sultan's Seven Secrets. Where did you? Why did you decide to write the book? What, what prompted you to say, you know, what I, I need to get this, I need to get this out to the world. Two years ago, I was getting ready to retire on my farm in Belize, and I just got the strongest gut feeling that I couldn't do that. I couldn't just walk off into the sunset, having been blessed the way I was, without sharing it with a lot more people. Now, I've, I've worked with hundreds of people one-on-one over the last 28 years, but I knew that wasn't good enough. This has to get out. And when I tell you the story of Sultan Musa of Mali and what he went through 
to write everything down and get it out to the world, you know, you realize that my little effort in uh, promulgating that is pretty small, but I've got to do what I can. You know, and I got to, we got to start there. This Sultan Musa of Mali, few people know his name, but everybody knows his story. He was the richest man to ever walk the earth. And people don't know this part. He was so much richer than like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, names we know. And he lived in the 1300s in West Africa. So this guy was amazing. Uh, he's in the history books. National Geographic did a, a big thing on him. But he started out an absolute pauper. His father died when he was young. That condemned him to poverty. And he actually had to steal food just to stay alive. But at the age of 12, he fell in with an older thief who tried to murder him rather than share the spoils of the little heist they did together. And it's a great story, but he had a near-death experience. And it's in this experience he met what he called a man made of light and love. And this man made of light taught him a lot of astonishing things, but he basically taught him how the world works, how creation works, how we work. And it's these principles that he used when he came back uh, to lift himself out of poverty. He became unbelievably wealthy uh, as he I don't think he ever had as a goal to become sultan, but as things worked out, he eventually became sultan and he lifted the whole Mali kingdom out of poverty, like changed it so drastically, expanded it, made them happy, made them quit fighting and warring. He's just got a great story and he was loved by everyone. He was so generous. Uh, on one of his little trips, the peasants that came running out from, uh, well, they were in Egypt, I guess, Cairo. They came running out to meet his impressive caravan, and he handed out so much gold that it collapsed the Egyptian economy. That's actually in the history books. And it took him years to build their economy back up because everyone had tons of gold, and there weren't enough products and services to go around. Anyway, the Sultan Musa of Mali was such a benevolent man, and he wrote extensively. He wanted to get what he learned from the man made of light, the secrets of his success, to everybody. And it's said that he built a school or started construction on a school every Friday. And in those schools, he set up instructors, taught them, and those instructors taught these exact principles to everybody who would listen. But here's the thing. He couldn't just come out and say, hey, I died yesterday, you know, and uh, then I came back to life and I met God and he taught me things that our, our most learned scholars don't know. He would have been killed. There's just, and he knew it. He knew that. So he embedded all of the secrets in a fairy tale that he wrote so compelling that centuries later, we're all familiar with it. Almost everyone on planet Earth knows 
of Aladdin and the Magic Lamp. Yes. And he's the author of that. Yeah. But he wrote extensively, he wrote another parchment. And people think, you know, like, why didn't you just come out and say it? Well, even in the 1600s, when those texts were given to Antoine Gallant, he didn't dare publish the second parchment. He only published a fairy tale. Because even in the 1600s, people were put to death, burned at the stake for the crime of heresy. And even today, you know, you can't really run around saying anything you want. You can get in a lot of trouble today. <laughs> yes. But in the last 30 years, at least, we can talk about near-death experiences, uh, spirit body, spirit world, uh, things, you know, that he couldn't. But I wrote the book because at the age of 33, I was that guy with a wheelbarrow in the back of an old pickup truck with a bucket of tools going off to finish concrete. I was frustrated with my life. I wanted a better life, but I was so stuck. Not just because I was in debt and I was, uh, you know, trying to hurry and finish one job so I could pay for materials, three jobs back. I mean, I couldn't afford to quit pouring concrete. I was stuck. But it was also in my mind, I had deep-seated subconscious beliefs of who I was, how I could make money. I, mean, I even remember uh, wanting to be like an entrepreneur, a businessman. These guys that drive around in a way nicer car and they're going to an office. But I remember my whole upbringing in a small town. We used to brag about how hard we worked physically. We'd count the bales we touched that summer and, you know, brag about how much hay we hauled. And we made fun of, and believe it or not, you know, small town cowboys, we looked down on people who made a lot of money and made that money without working hard physically. And we had names for them, you know, city slickers, uh, pitch men, yeah. slick willies. But you think that's harmless. It's not. It was, in, it was embedded in me subconscious beliefs that I could not make money without working hard physically. And yet I knew I couldn't provide for my family. I couldn't have the life I wanted if I stayed in the trades and just poured concrete for the rest of my life. And that created just massive frustration. Not only that, you know, I was working so hard and proud of the work I was doing, but I was working seven days, well, six days a week. I took Sunday off, but I'd just sleep all day. You know, I really didn't spend time with my wife. I wasn't helping with our son. And I thought my wife really appreciated my hard work and paying the bills, but she dropped a bomb on me, you know, one day and just, uh, she wasn't happy. I wasn't doing anything with her. I wasn't there. I'd, I'd get up at five in the morning, leave before they were awake, and come home at 7.30 at night, wolf down some dinner, take a shower, and fall into bed so I could do it again the next day. So that was devastating to me, though, that she wasn't happy with my efforts. And that's when I knew, well, I basically just dropped into not clinical depression. That wouldn't be fair to people who are really suffering that way. But 
a type of depression. I used to wake up in the morning and I remember thinking, crap, I'm still alive. That was kind of my feeling, you know, and then I'd get up and go off and do my day. Yeah. And I remember it being kind of in the same spot. I remember, And it's almost like when you're in that spot, it's almost like you're, I, I, I say it's almost like being in a rowboat and you don't even see land around. You don't, you're rowing and rowing. You don't even see the land of where you're going. It's like, it's yeah. just, you're just out there just rowing. You have no idea which direction to go. That's a perfect analogy. I did something I knew I wasn't supposed to do. I was uh, on a job. There was this elegant couple. They were old, probably younger than I am now. But when I was 33, you know, they looked really old. <laughs> but they were elegant. They were, he was handsome, straight. She was beautiful, even with their silver hair, you know. And they were just so nice, obviously very wealthy. And she would talk to us. And as I saw what she had and where I was, I, it just came tumbling out of me. And I complained. I told her how frustrated I was, how I wanted this, but I could never have it. And right in the middle of my complaining, she turned around and walked away. And I was so embarrassed. You know, but a few minutes later, she came back and placed a manuscript in my hands. And I wasn't even going to read it. Honestly, when she gave it to me, she said, read it tonight, bring it back to me in the morning. And I was thinking, lady, there is no way in this world I'm reading your paper. I don't have time for that. You don't have any idea what time I get home and how tired I am. But almost by a stroke of luck, I read the first page while I was in bed, waiting for my wife to come to bed. And I stayed up all night reading the whole thing and taking copious notes. And that manuscript changed my life. There's something, and that was written by Sultan Musa of Mali, and it contained all of the teachings from the man made of light, a whole bunch of his wisdom uh, from applying these teachings in his life and what it meant and how it worked, but also something uh, a complete tutorial on speaking something called the language of the gods. And he said, if when you speak this language, the world obeys your commands. So I read about this and there it is, how to do it, right in front of me. I got filled with excitement and hope like I had never felt probably in my entire life. It was just unbelievable. It's like I was, uh, you know, locked in jail and somebody just hands me the key to the door and says, you're free if you use this key. But Sean, I was terrified to use it. I didn't dare speak it because in that euphoria, I felt like if I try this and it doesn't work, I'm going to go out in the desert and <laughs> End it. You know, I, I would be so depressed and so bummed out. I couldn't stand it. So I just started toying with it, like playing with it. And almost immediately, weird coincidences started popping up. So I did more. And eventually, I couldn't deny these new things that are happening are 
directly related to the way I'm speaking the language of the gods. They weren't happening a month ago. They weren't happening even a week ago. And now they're popping up left and right, and they all match the way I'm speaking the language of the gods. So at some point, I just went nuts on it like crazy. I was speaking it from the minute I woke up to the time I went to bed. And my life changed dramatically, like fast. Freaked everybody out. The speed that it happened freaked me out. But I knew exactly what I'd done to cause the change. Right. And I'll jump into that a little bit if you want to. But Sure. I, I, I uh, want to kind of go back to what you were saying a little bit earlier on, you know, the near-death experience and, you know, for him. And you yeah. you see this in many other writings and many other things that when people have a near-death experience, they meet something. They tap it. It puts you into, to me, you, you completely lose your conscious objective of whatever it is you're you're in completely. And do you think, so if you look at that, do you think that is more, you see yourself as you, like your subconscious, like you tap in and you see everything. Because to me, we all know everything. We all have either we all know everything, or we have access to the world, to infinite intelligence. Yeah, our minds yeah. have access to every. It's connected to the whole universe and everyone else's subconscious minds. Sean, I had a weird experience at the age of eighteen. I used to ride rodeo, and I died in a rodeo and popped out of my body. Now, I didn't see a man made of light. I, I was out just for a few moments, but I absolutely was out of my body. And what I realized is that I was still me. So just like I think and feel right now, that's how I was. I remember thinking about, oh, my mom, when she finds out, you know, she never wanted me to ride rodeo. She begged me to stop. This was my fourth year of doing it, and now I died. Uh, I worried about how are they going to get my truck home? I hid the key. They're never going to find that key, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And then I started worrying about, well, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? And I had heard somewhere that you might see like a tunnel with a light at the end and you go towards the tunnel. And so I, I was like, hey, is there anybody, you know, Aren't I supposed to see a bright light? And right then, the brightest light flashed in front of me, but I was back in my physical body. And we'll talk about the spirit body and the physical body, because of the two, it's the spirit body that is the real, it's the real you. It has the power. It has the life. The physical body is just, you know, once the spirit body pops out, and that's all that happens at death, it's worthless. It's just a pile of clay yep. getting ready to turn back to dust. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And your spirit moves on, and I, I had had that experience, so I knew it. But when that light flashed, I was actually back on the horse and looking at straight at the sun. And that's why it was so bright. I had to, like, you know. Uh, but having had that experience helped me kind of absorb all of this and understand it. Yeah. And I think there's we'll methods. Go back to the spirit. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. 
I, no, I want to hear your question. I'm, you know, I, I think part of what I like and what it's like how so people go through these near death experiences and they they tap into spirit. I mean, they, oh, they tap yeah. into spirit, and it's like how can we how can we do that? without having near-death experience? How can we, we, there's ways that we can tap into it. Yeah, Sultan Musa of Mali wrote it down. You don't have to have a near-death experience to learn this. It is literally the formula for how it works. I'm gonna give it to you right now. So he was taught, he was shown that all this, you have a spirit body, that's the real you, you have a physical body, uh, there's, a spirit world and a physical world. The spirit world absolutely controls the physical, just like your spirit body animates your physical body. But we're taught to focus on what's going on in the physical realm. And I'm telling you right now, this is where I was. I was trying to change my physical reality without first changing my spirit reality, my psyche. What's the movie I'm running in my head of who I am? And you can't do it. I mean, you can, but it's so frustrating and so hard and takes so long. The second you change spirit realities, it's like things change so rapidly because everything you want, if you don't have it, it's all out there somewhere, like that million-dollar idea that you want or, you know, that, that perfect sweetheart. Well, out there is where everything you want lives. And the trick, your subconscious mind knows it all. It knows exactly what you need to do to get into perfect health, but it will not share that information with you, the conscious mind, until you change the role you're playing. And I got to get into this because the role, we're all just playing roles. And think of yourself as an actor on a stage. You get into character, you, uh, you know, you cling to that role, you try not to pop out a character. And think of your subconscious mind, which is the mechanism that controls your life. Musa called it the veiled mind. But we, we're familiar with this. This isn't new to us. You have a subconscious mind that is running the show. You can take that to the bank. And it's the stage manager. So it doesn't care what role you play. Just whatever role you're playing, it will support that role by putting things in your life that are congruent with that role and keeping everything off the stage that isn't congruent. So your subconscious mind, though, it's connected to everybody else's subconscious mind. It's, it's connected to all wisdom, all power. It can put anything on the stage of your life that it feels should be there. But if it doesn't think it should be there, it is not coming out on the stage. That's all there is to it. You can wish that it were there, but it's, it's not coming. Your subconscious mind is also connected to God, which whether you're religious or not, and I had a hard time with religion. You know, I, I wanted the Bible to be true. I gave it its due respect, but I just couldn't relate to it. All these sayings were just like, well, how do I apply that? Like faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do miracles. Well, what if I don't? How do I get more? How do I know how much I have? You know, it's just like, 
it was confusing and it bothered me. Well, after reading, you know, one of the things that happened to me after reading Sultan Musa Mali's uh, writings is that the scriptures and other religious sayings and things just came into clear. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what it means. And by the way, that faith one, that mustard seed one, you go back and read it after reading my book, it has not one thing to do with an amount. It's an action. Seeds, the, the movie you're running in, the, in your head, the ideas, the images, the scenarios that you entertain in your mind generate specific feelings. If you're focused on, you know, the worst case scenario, what could happen, you feel one way. If you're focused on a big dream and possibilities and getting all pumped up and excited, you feel differently. Those feelings are the language of the God. It's feelings. And those feelings are being planted into your subconscious mind. And what does a mustard seed do? You know, it doesn't grow into a strawberry plant or a pine tree. It grows into like things over time. And when you're, when you fill your head with exciting, positive, uplifting dreams and possibilities, those get planted in your subconscious mind. And I'm going to tell you how this works in a second, the formula. And you'll, you'll, some people are ticked when they hear it because it's so simple. They think they should have seen it a long time ago. But we're trained to do the opposite. So when you plant feelings in your subconscious mind, it believes them. It believes every one of your feelings. It doesn't give a crap about your words. It doesn't care about your thoughts. It knows what you're saying. It's well aware of your thinking, but it does not listen to those in terms of obeying them, responding to them, or being programmed by them. It listens to your feelings, and it speaks back to you in feelings as well, and this is how it keeps your life congruent. So you are telling, well, remember in the metaphor, Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, the all-powerful genie that can get you anything you want. He's got all the power. That's your subconscious mind, and it only says two things. One is a question. What is wanted? What do you want? The other is a statement. Your wish is my command. Well, your subconscious mind is always asking, what do you want? And you're always answering by how you feel. And it just believes your feelings and then keeps your life congruent with your predominant feelings. Now, how your wish is my command. Yeah. So, how, so what are some of the things that we can do to change our feelings? Because, you know, thoughts become things, our feelings become, they become the things that we see. And and I, I tell people, it's like, you look around right now. Every single thing that you have is exactly where you are. You're, you're where you are right now because yep. of the things that you've done. Yourself, yep. you, you, you've programmed 100% everything around you. So how do we change? To me, I think we're all programmed at a very young age with our feelings, yep. with our, you know, before our Absolutely. conscious mind gets involved, we're programmed and, and you know, we kind of live that, you know, live that program. So how can we, what are some of the things that we can do to change 
the feelings, the, the feelings that we have, the feelings that we give our subconscious to change our outcome. Right. It's why you turn in your dad, you know, <laughs> or you turn in your mom. It's because you have subconscious beliefs about what a person should be that were set way back when you were a kid. But you're setting new ones all the time, so I'll get to that. But every subconscious belief was set by an event accompanied by strong emotion. And that's still how it works. So to change any aspect of your life that you're not happy with, it's so simple. You simply stop feeling bad about it and start feeling good about it. Your subconscious mind will hear your feelings, believe them, and then it has tremendous power. Once it believes something, it makes it true in your physical realm. It just does. And this is so easy to see in other people, harder to see in ourselves. But it goes out. So there's an element of magic to this. It's not just, hey, get positive and pick better dreams and dream bigger and get excited and then go to work and try to get that. No. It's when you dream those bigger dreams, you get pumped up with these feelings of opportunity and excitement and possibility. You're flooding your subconscious mind with those feelings. It hears them, believes them, and then whatever it believes, it makes true with power and precision. So once you're flooding your subconscious mind with positive feelings, it already knows, it goes out and orchestrates different situations, orchestrates different meetings. People will come into your life, new, like, you've had this happen, you know, you start thinking about something and you're like, oh, I have half of this business. And if I had somebody who had the marketing side, this could go huge, you know, and then you think about it enough, you're getting pumped up and excited, you're making plans, you're feeling good about it. And the next thing you know, what happens? Well, somebody you've never met before, maybe you have met them, but you haven't talked to them in 10 years, they call you up. Hey, Jeff, you want to go to lunch? And at lunch, you're talking about business, and they're talking about business, and you realize, oh my gosh, we have something here. Yeah. That's exactly what happened to me. But your subconscious mind goes and does that. So you don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to know what to do exactly. <laughs> You just have to build the dream, get the right feelings flowing, and it'll take it from there. Yeah. If you're the one figuring just it out, it's not going to be the right thing. <laughs> right. Well, you can't figure out everything, you know. Again, everything you want is in that magical place out there. The trick is to get it to come to you. Get that idea to come to you. Get that person you need to come to you. Get the perfect sweetheart to come to you. But you've got to change your feelings. And and I think you also I think you also have to be open to it. So I I know for me, it's like I'll I'll do this stuff and I'll have the and I'll get these ideas and then all of a sudden my conscious mind kicks in and says, ah, Sean, that's stupid. That'll never work. We ignore <laughs> we ignore these things that we're yeah. attracting. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when I say it's as simple as, you know, stop feeling bad about your career and start feeling good about it, it's really not that simple, although I can make it simple for you. Uh, because if you start 
dreaming about a better career and doing something really exciting and fun and making plenty of money, your reality is here and your feelings right now are absolutely aligned with your reality. You, you know, so if you change your feelings like drastically, you start feeling really good about an aspect of your life and it's not congruent with reality, the first thing your subconscious mind will do is try to bring you back in alignment with your reality. So it feeds you feelings and ideas and, and thoughts and uh, motivations. And it will say, hey, Jeff, that's not your reality. You know, come on yeah. back, buddy. Get, pick up your tools and get to work. You're a concrete guy. Because it's supporting this role that you've been programmed to play. But if you persist in creating feelings that don't match your reality, it will give up and pretty quickly, pretty easily actually, and it will go change your reality to match your new feelings. And the way you do that, and you're gonna love this, everyone listening is gonna love this, is with your superpower. The ability to imagine and pretend. Well, guess what? You were a born pretender. You are an absolute pro. You were born that way. That's how you've learned everything. You came into this world, and as a child, you just lived in a make-believe, pretend world like crazy. And your parents had to literally teach you to quit doing that. So you would get with the program, you know, get your head out of the clouds, focus on your homework. Get with reality, right? And you did. You were even scolded if you, you know, you got too far into school and you were still a big daydreamer and coming up with big dreams and pretending and running outside with a cape on. You know, your mother would be embarrassed. Hey, you can't dress up anymore. You know, you're too old for that. You got to stop this. And we all did. But during those hours of childhood play where it felt good. It was just fun to pretend to be whatever it was you were doing. You know, the sheriff, the you're the king of the castle, the princess, whatever you were doing, it was fun and it felt good. And your subconscious mind was listening to those feelings. So a lot of your attributes, kind of your core attributes, were programmed when you were very young. So a girl who played princess and felt great about it she maybe goes out into the real world with this subconscious belief that you have to treat me nice. You don't get to, you don't get to mistreat me or I'm gone. You know, and so, of course, that can, those subconscious beliefs can be snuffed out and new negative ones can be inserted because, again, the process doesn't quit. You have an event or something happens accompanied by strong emotion and boom, you've got a subconscious belief that just got locked in. But you can exploit that knowledge. And by the way, that's really the magic lamp. The magic lamp represents the knowledge or the, the uh, language of the gods, knowing that feelings is how you speak to the genie, your subconscious mind. It doesn't care about anything else. But it represents more than that, really. And that's the understanding of how it works, the knowledge that you have a mechanism that controls your life 
And once its program is set, that's how it's going to be. But you can take control of that and seize control of that communication and start speaking the feelings that match the life you want. No matter what's going on in your physical world, just ignore that and go back to your childhood. Uh, you know, people say things like, Jeff, you need a big dose of reality, brother. And, and the reality, though, is the truth. No, you don't. You got plenty of that. What you need is a giant mega dose of make-believe. Yeah. That's where creation is. Everything that was invented, this cell phone, you know, uh, this ability to talk when you're in Houston and I'm in Utah, it all began as a great big daydream in somebody's mind. And then they talked about it with excitement and somebody else bought into it and added something. And the next thing you know, here we are.